And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We're here giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And I'll give you all of the other uh, preliminary stuff later, which means it's no longer preliminary. Um, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to jump straight into our program here because... Uh, not so much because our guest has a limited amount of time, but because we, uh, I think we need to get into this with our very special guest, who is um, the author of Tomorrow Together. It's Essays of Hope, Healing, and Humanity, and his name is David Dye. And uh, David, I want to thank you so much for giving us this time to, to talk not only about the book, but also about the work that you do through your website, which is letsgrowleaders.com. That's a subject, by the way, we've talked about many times on this program. And I've got to tell you, my friend, that, um, and staying apolitical here in this conversation, we got a lot of people who think they're leaders and they haven't got a clue because they don't care about the people they're supposed to be representing. And I'm not just talking on the national level either. I'm talking about the across this country in, in, in many of the elected positions, as well as appointed positions uh, that people take, uh, maybe even in the corporate world, CEOs and, and, and folks in managerial positions. It's one of the things that, uh, David, um, I have to say I was blessed because I've been in the management position, but I was always doing the same work as a manager as my, and I say this, co-workers we're doing. Thanks for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here, Richard. Thanks for having me. Have you found that to be the case that uh, when you come across folks, they're they're working in the old paradigm, if you will, that I'm the boss and you're going to do as I say because I'm the boss. Well, there are certainly many leaders like that, and you'll find them across uh, whatever spectrum. And so my day job, if you will, I'm the president of Let's Grow Leaders, and so we're a leadership consultancy, and we work globally uh, to help leaders who want to be human-centered and get amazing business results at the same time. And so we equip them with very practical skills at every level from executive strategic down to frontline tactical to do that. And, and so, yes, there are many folks there who fall into that, and I'm going to call it a trap or a pit that you just described. And we do it for a lot of reasons. Sometimes we don't know any better. Sometimes it's how it was role modeled for us. Sometimes we get into a, a you know, that survival mode where I'm like, I'm stressed out, I'm pressured, I don't know what to do, and I don't have anything else to rely on. And so just do this, just do this. And, you know, so there's a lot of reasons that people fall into those kinds of, of, of traps. And, you know, and on the uh, elected official side, I was an elected, I was a local elected official uh, much earlier in my life. It's been a couple decades now. And uh, uh, fantastic experience. And I have a lot of empathy for for everyone doing that work and we need good elected officials it is not easy to do oh, <laughs> i was sure. talking with a school i was asked to run for school board a couple of times and i never did that but uh, i was talking with a school board president in a contentious district and he said something i've never forgotten richard he said you know what we are entrusted with two of people's most important things their money and their children of course it's going to be contentious. <laughs> and I thought, what a healthy perspective to have and to value and honor what people are bringing to the table in those conversations. Mm. Well, I had an experience many, many years ago as an operations manager of a radio station back in Phoenix. 
And um, I told one of my coworkers, um, I need you to do this. He says, no, I'm not going to do it. Now, the way I came across apparently wasn't so great because he says, I'm not going to do it because you told me to do it. And so I had to rethink it. And I thought, okay, well, I need you to do this because, you know, the clients, et cetera, et cetera, need a, a clean place or whatever it was, the task. I can't remember the task. And he agreed to do it because it wasn't for me. And I described that phase in my managerial, and thank God it was early. I described that phase as the my Hitlerian phase. I'm, <laughs> I am the boss, okay? I discarded that right away. And <clears throat> I don't, I, I have never lorded it over any of my um, uh, co-workers. Because that's what yeah. they were. That's what they are. Because uh, I think, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious about something. You know that pyramid they like to draw, they like to create, uh, uh, you know, with a graph, and at the top is the CEO. And let's say down the side of the graph, you have the, 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 the salaries, okay? And at the bottom, of course, are the workers. They're the people that actually are making the money for the guy at the top. And there's a part of me that feels as though the salary structure can stay right where it is. Flip the pyramid over. Let's do it that way. Because I've never known, because I've never been a CEO and I've not really associated with those folks, I don't know what it is that they do that makes them think that they should be getting those million-dollar bonuses, that they should be making the kind of money that they are making. And this has nothing to do, this, I'm not, this is not jealousy. It's the fact that <clears throat> it's almost as if they've forgotten <clears throat> what it's like working down at the bottom of the pyramid. It's one of the reasons I love the television program, Undercover Boss. Yeah. Because it yeah, opens up people's show. eyes. Yeah, powerful show. You know, there's uh, we, we could talk about that topic for a whole hour, and there's, uh, there's a lot that goes into that. Uh, and I've worked on, uh, on both sides of when I – both sides of non-for-profits non uh, as well as uh, for-profits and then in, in public service. And – and if I'm being realistic and objective, there are skill sets that are rare in terms of strategic thinking, forward planning, and the ability to mobilize a large group of people that are valuable and are harder to find. And so the market values them at a higher higher rate. That said, it's also a dysfunction that sets in when you've got some of the, the massive differences in in pay range. And you see some really cool experiments that uh, different companies been doing along those lines and some of the really phenomenal results that they've been seeing as they equalize that or, or, and everybody's approaching it in different ways. Um, and that said, if I have one thought that I would approach all of this with that tomorrow together is really about is, is to not other and to not they, and I'm making the word other and they into verbs. Mm-hmm. It is so easy for all of us, every single one of us, myself included. I have been here. I've done this, and, and I still wrestle with this because it's human nature to other someone. And when I other them or I make them they, I reduce them down to an image. And they're not a three-dimensional, fully realized human being with all the foibles that we all have and without the recognition that if I were in their shoes and if I had lived the life they've lived, gosh, I might be making the same choices. And it's, it's easy to forget that in our day-to-day -day 
realities. And I don't care who we're talking about. If we're talking about somebody on the other side of the political aisle, if we're talking about our, uh, our, our, our least favorite relative, if we're talking about the CEO, if we are a CEO and we're talking about one of our frontline folks who's a burr in our saddle, whoever it might be, yeah. you know, we, we all tend to do that as human beings. And part of our success going forward uh, as a human species, and whether we're talking in a team, in an organization, or globally, all of us human beings, is to do less of that and more of really realizing the humanity of one another. Are you looking for hope? You're looking for hope with a dash of humor and humility. The 21st century hasn't started the way many expected, and we <clears throat> we confront a a potent mix of global pandemic, climate change, the uh, the resurrection, or rather, I should say, the resurgence of authoritarianism. Uh, at the same time, white nationalism, polarization, uh, and war that once again threatens to consume the planet. And it can feel frustrating and hopeless. And I thought about this as I was reading through some of the materials along with the book, uh, to, tomorrow, uh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> uh, tomorrow Together, which again is Essays of Hope, Healing, and Humanity. And there are two people, <clears throat> two people specifically, um, and again, not being political in any way, shape, or form. Now speaking personalities here. We're now speaking leadership skills. I would love for you, if I had the wherewithal to hire you to do this, I would love for you to uh, train these two individuals to be human-centered leaders. And they are, and this is, this is no, uh, no slight on anybody who supports them or believes that what they've done or are doing is is a good thing or a bad thing for that matter. Donald Trump and uh, I can't even think of his first name now, Putin. These two individuals, Vladimir. I, I beg your pardon? Vladimir. Vladimir. Vladimir Putin, yes. I would like to see you train them to actually be human-centered leaders. They certainly have the charisma at, at some level to have gotten to where they are. But somewhere along the way, whether they ever had it in the first place, but somewhere along the way, they have lost that connection. And there are others around the world, I'm sure you've come across this, who've lost their connection to their own humanity. Yeah. And I have to say, I don't want... For example, I was talking about this when the war first started in early 2022. I says, if I had the wherewithal, I'd get on a plane. Uh, I'd fly to Moscow. I would go into the Kremlin. I would walk down that 40-foot table. I would grab that little nutball by the ear and say, uh-uh, your mother is ashamed of you. And we don't play this way in the 21st century. You are on a permanent timeout. I don't want him killed. Okay. Uh, there is karma involved here. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Okay, Einstein, same thing. So there are consequences to our, our actions. But uh, it seems like th these are in two individuals in specifically, but there are others, that you and I, who want to be human-centered in our leadership, we, I believe, and I'm, am I mistaken, that we can actually learn from these two gentlemen. It may sound strange to some folks, but there are things that they 
are teaching us along the way? Yeah, there are. Uh, you, you open a door there to so many different things. So first, to answer your last question, absolutely. I always say that uh, some of the poor leaders in our life, whether it's a manager you've had, a global figure, uh, whoever that might be, those are the best leadership textbooks for any of us. I mean, we can read and, and look, I've written several, uh, and my wife and I have written several uh, books on leadership and management and culture and highly recommend them. That said, one of the best, most meaningful textbooks you'll ever have is a leader who you look at and go, wow, I don't ever want to do what they're doing. Those lessons are visceral, they stick in our heart, and they can really help us shift our focus and find something more productive and meaningful to, to be about. That said, uh, for those two individuals in particular, you know, they come from somewhere. And this is the, the part that I hope everybody listening, it's easy for us to put our focus on other people. Mm -hmm. And do we do the same thing? And I, I will tell you, I have watched so many folks on both sides of the political spectrum and in different countries be the very thing they are upset about the other person being because of fear, because of insecurity. And, and two th those are things that you can say both of those individuals have as driving forces. I don't know them. I'm not a psychoanalyst. I don't mm -hmm. know either of them mm -hmm. personally. I haven't met either of them personally. But you know, and from what you read, there is some insecurity driving that and that need for power and for prestige and for, for something that is driving them. And it's this aching need that they've got that all of us can relate with at mm -hmm. some level, even if it's in a smaller way. And it's how we manage that. And so when you talk about, I wish I could train them, for me, that training couldn't happen until that hurt is is healed. And that's a significant hurt. Well, so what do I do about that as a human being living on now a planet of 8 billion people? Because I don't know folks, either literally. of them. I'm not going to directly, you know, are they going to read? Love it if they would. And if you want to send them a copy, I'll be happy to offer <laughs> autograph. That said, there's not, there isn't a Russian translation available yet. That said, the work that's available for each of us is in our sphere of influence. Yeah. And are we living those values that we're critical of other people for, oh, gosh, they're really working out of a lot of insecurity there. Holy cow, they think they have the truth with a capital T and no one else is true. Well, are we doing that to the people in our sphere or mm -hmm. to the, the folks that think differently from us? Or are we approaching it with compassion, empathy, seeking to understand with genuine curiosity, not excusing people's behavior? When someone is a bad actor and does something wrong, I'm not excusing that, and I may even forgive it. That doesn't mean that I just accept it and that's the way things are. Right. But am I approaching that person with curiosity and the confidence in my own values, but the humility to explore and recognize some of where they're coming from too? That's what it's going to take to heal some of this stuff and make it so that ultimately folks like the two that you've mentioned are irrelevant. Yeah. And you've, you've, you've stated it really well from the standpoint that one of the things that I learned very early on in my career, but also in my studies as a metaphysician, is that those things that I, I'll put it this way, find objectionable, um, I find irritating in someone else, is nothing more than a reflection yeah. of something inside of me that I need to take yeah. a look at. Forget about, okay, this person has played their role. They've played the role of of, of uh, reflector or of mirror, if you will. And now I, I, I let the mirror go 
And I start taking a look at, okay, so what, what's going on inside of me that makes me feel the way I do about this person's attitude or actions or behavior and so forth? And I will tell you that <clears throat> in 2017, in January, uh, because I got, I got sucked into the whole political thing. I didn't get sucked in until September of 26, 2015. I'm sorry, 2016, 2016. And uh, actually in June of 2015, when I saw the announcement and I heard the speech that I eventually tuned out of, uh, I didn't care what his policy, he could have been a Democrat, could have been an independent, a liber- I didn't care, could have been a communist for all I know. Well, what I did know was I didn't want a bully for president. And so mm-hmm. I ignored it all until that September. And then I got sucked into it. Took me six months to get unsucked. And when I did, the first step that I was able to come to that was the hardest was, thank you, teacher, for teaching me how not to behave. Mm -hmm. That was the first part. The other three steps I'll, I'll share with you later. But that's something that we all need to come to grips with when we, and then, and you're absolutely right, too, in what you say that we don't really know these people. The only part of them that we know is what we've been exposed to through the various forms of media, which is not really an accurate depiction of that person. And some of it is also what they choose to portray, which mm-hmm. you can also not, you know, there, but there's just always that it's that realization and that, that part, I was laughing when you're talking about the things that irritate us and other people. Uh, a couple of weeks back, I, I, ha- I was asked this question. Uh, if there were a clone of you, how would you get along? And our whole team, we were having fun discussing it. And I said, Oh, my clone. No, my clone and I, I don't think we could handle one another. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. And my team was like, why David, why do you feel that way? And I thought, well, I'm a lot. I can be intense. I mean, I, I irritate myself some days and that's just me. What if I had a whole other physical version of myself and they were laughing, but I think there's truth to that. I think what you call out there is a, is a really, uh, a very true thing. And, you know, tomorrow together, the, the, it's a series of essays, but there's a number of them that touch on these different aspects of mm-hmm. how limited our perspective is and yeah. how well it serves us to broaden that perspective in all sorts of different ways, not just about other people, but, our physical world, uh, you know, our, our, our limitations on what we see and what we know and, and all the rest of it. It's interesting, too, because the first thing that came to my mind was the story of that young black gentleman, uh, fairly prominent, who um, alleged that he had just been attacked by, I can't remember if it was a, a couple of black guys or white guys or whatever it was. And initially, people accepted the truth of what he was telling. But the more investigation that went on, the more you began to find out that he set it all up. Sure. That it was all a yeah. hoax. And again, when you talk about perception, the initial first glance perception is, oh my gosh, that's awful. That's terrible. Oh my God, we got to find these guys. But as time goes on, you go, what do you mean he lied? He, what do you mean yeah. he set this up? This was all a game to him? I'm not castigating him by any means, but just as an example of how perceptions will change over time, which is another good reason why when we first see something, let's say on the news or some of our outlets that we, we like to watch, 
we'd be very careful to start casting aspersions or accepting those at, that as truth, as, as accurate. Yeah. You know, let's that's let some it. time go by. Let's let the investigators research this. Let's, let's, hold, let's, let's hold, withhold judgment because what if that was us on the other end? Yep. And, and it we, goes so many different directions. Yeah. Like I, I, I come back to when I'm teaching new managers or, or new leaders, uh, one of the principles that I will hope to cultivate is in any situation, don't react, get the facts. And, you know, and, and so there's a little rhyming there to help us internalize it. Right. But the, the principle of we don't know, <laughs> we have an initial impression we have, and and he, as human, again, this is just our human nature, and it's the reason that social media does what it does, and why it polarizes us, and all the rest, is when we see something that resonates with the things that we already believe, we more immediately readily believe that, and if you throw in some emotional trigger words in there, poof, it, it, we believe it and fire up even more so. Mm-hmm. And when we recognize that and gain awareness of that in ourselves, it gives us the ability to do what you're talking about, Richard, to say, okay, wait a minute. Okay, here's some information. Hmm. Let me hold that in a space and hold it with curiosity and regardless of who it is. And let me see what bears out over time on this. And that is not kind of the the popular consciousness right now. It isn't, but it's the much healthier, friendlier, uh, ultimately, I think, less stressful way to live. Yeah. And will help us to build more meaningful relationships with people who disagree with us, who, uh, but who, with whom we can have similar aims and have some some good discourse, whether that's at work or in life or across the aisle, wherever it might be. Mm-hmm. Let'sGrowLeaders.com is the website. My guest is David Dye. The book is Tomorrow Together, Essays of Hope, Healing, and Humanity. There is hope because we have the resources, wisdom, And most importantly, we have one another. As we continue here on Tell Me Your Story, I'm Richard Dugan, your host. And David Dye, it's a great pleasure to have you on the program to talk about uh, this latest work, uh, Tomorrow Together, and the work that you are doing to help to, uh, to form the leaders, if you will, of tomorrow. Whether they actually take leadership roles over a numbers of people, or even take a leadership role in their own lives. You find that to be the case a lot of times that uh, the folks sometimes that you work with, they haven't even taken a leadership role in their own lives. You know, it's interesting if we take it back to the the work setting and and kind of professional or corporate leadership and management is I, I really think there are five common reasons people take those roles. I call them the five P's. Three of them are things that we've talked a little bit about here. So power, um, that notion of I'm going to have the ability to tell people what to do, which, by the way, is an illusion. But people do fall into that, thinking that's a that's a reason for it. Um, pride or prestige, they get some gratification from the letters that come after their name or, or the thing on the, the title, whatever it is. Uh, again, if that's a motivation, that's a hole you're never going to fill, Mm -hmm. but it's something that drives people in that direction. And then there's the purse or pennies, right? So there's the money, which again, I always tell people it's never worth it. The level of headache, heartache, and responsibility you're taking when you accept those roles, you may initially want to do it for the money, but the money's never going to be worth the actual level of responsibility. 
In contrast, and, and by the way, if you're working out of any of those three, those are all very human notions, power, prestige, and, and purse. But if we're working from those three or trying to lead from those three, as you referenced earlier, we're not going to have influence with our teams for all the reasons that you said earlier, right? Mm -hmm. That's Those are all three about us as a manager, as a leader. In contrast, we've got two others, people and purpose. And if we can be about supporting the people and investing in the people who are doing the work and then be about the purpose, what is the reason for the work that we're doing? We're, we're, we formed a team to do something bigger than ourselves. And so when you talk about self-leadership, I think it starts with getting down to that fundamental. What are my own motivations? What are my own values? Am I clear about those things? And I have the utmost respect for people who consider leadership or management roles and say, you know what? No, that's not really me. That's not really what I want to do. Mm. And choose not to do it either for because they recognize it would just be for one of those reasons and not that they don't care about those others sufficiently, or they just know they're not wired that way. When we can get clear on our own values, that makes us a, a person of influence regardless of whatever title we might have. And so the, the things that we're talking about, the, the having the, the compassion, the empathy, and the curiosity for other people, and, and we're engaging those conversations, that doesn't require a title. It starts with leading ourselves, absolutely, and then it's those concentric circles out from there. And, and these techniques, these principles, if you will, they transcend business. They transcend um, uh, into even into family life. Absolutely. I mean, I, I have to say that I don't know about my grandfather, my father's father. <clears throat> I know about my mother's father, my, my grandfather on my mother's side. He was, he was uh, chief of police. He was uh, fire chief, uh, among other things, in the small town of Florence, Arizona. But my father was never, nor my mother, were never authoritarian in raising us. I mean, I, I, and, and I can never, I cannot recall, they may have, I just don't recall them ever fighting. Mm. The, um, it was probably as close to a Norman Rockwell painting as you can get without being a Norman Rockwell painting. Um, I mean, it wasn't perfect. I mean, you're talking six kids in a, maybe a twelve to 1,300 square foot house. Three bedrooms. Richard, something we have in common. I yes. am the oldest of six kids in a similar sized house. Well, in our case, catch this: three bedrooms, one bathroom, four sisters. <laughs> four. I also had four sisters, <laughs> and I also had one brother, mm -hmm. and um, and we survived. Nobody was killed. Nobody died in the process of only having one bathroom. <laughs> And I, I, I think back on those times, and, and I am so grateful for having that experience, but I'm also saddened by the fact that the kids of today can't have the same kind of experience, especially when it came to going out and playing. We were running all over the neighborhoods without fear yeah. of being shot or being abducted or, or any of this kind of stuff. Yeah. We were just enjoying being kids as we grew up in grade school and high school and so forth. And the parents, the majority of the parents of the kids that we hung out with on our block and on the other side, they were all good people. There was no, as far as we knew, there, nobody was being abused. No one was being hit 
un, uh, you know, merciful, merci, mercilessly uh, for misbehaving and so forth. Uh, and for the most part, we all obeyed our parents, you know, when it was time to, and they hollered to come inside, you know, not out of fear. Oh, there's mom calling us in. We've got to go. Uh, we, it was just what we did. And I have to wonder about uh, how kids are being raised today differently than they were in, in my day as a kid. Um, I mean, my, I, I still remember my mother saying to me, we were having a conversation years after I got out of school. I was bullied a lot because I was legally blind in school. And I remember my mother saying at this conversation when I think I was in my 20s, and she says, uh, you know, I am really sorry that we couldn't protect you better. Which I thought was a rather interesting uh, admission, so to speak. But it was like, what, what are you going to do? Follow me around through, through 12 years of school? You can't do that. You know, I mean, I appreciate the sentiment, but it's not something that I don't think that, you know, I would ever expect a parent to, to do. Yeah, you want to keep your kids safe and everything. And today, that's the other big thing is kids in school. I can't imagine going to school today because I wouldn't feel safe going to school because you never know if you're going to get to go home because of, of the times in which we live today. It's such a difference. Do you have, well, have the, and certainly the leadership qualities have changed over the years, if you will, right? I mean, we've, We've had the authoritarian, patriarchal kinds of things. Is the influx of women in leadership roles changing the model, the paradigm of leadership? Oh, I want to go back. So, again, several questions to unpack there and walk through. So first I want to go to the idea of how, we're, how young people are coming up. Um, because I find it useful to look at the continuum. There's not a way that young people are, are raised. Now, the information and the internet, that is a thing that is vastly, vastly different. And, you know, the, na the digital native generation is very different in that regard than anything that's come before. And I think we, we really got to be paying a lot of attention to that. Um, that said, there are other elements of how I was like, my wife and I are, talk every once in a while and how grateful we are for some of the experiences and some of the attitudes and values that have shifted and changed for our kids versus what we experienced when we were young. And there are some positive changes as well as some of the challenging changes that I agree with you. Like I wish that, that kids had that same freedom to go out and play outside the, the way that you and I did. I had a similar experience. My friends and I would run, <laughs> run around the neighborhood until, mm -hmm. you know, six o'clock or when it got dark. And, and if I wasn't home by dark, I got in trouble and not because uh, like you said, authoritarian, because they were worried about me. Right. Exactly. So, you know, so there's the, all there are, there are positives and there are challenges and it's different, but there are also some good things. I don't want to throw all of that out. So we want to acknowledge those. Then the, the second thing that, that uh, the question you're asking about women in leadership. And so first I would say uh, long overdue and still not where it needs to be. So if you look at the makeup of, like you were saying, CEOs or top executive leadership, uh, still a lot of work to do in terms of, of uh, equity and, and 
uh, and having an equitable workplace where everybody is being valued in a similar fashion for what they're bringing. So we've got a lot to do there. That said, is there a shift? And my answer is yes and no. I have met some female senior leaders, executives, who were as, for lack of better word, using what you call patriarchal, authoritarian, Mm -hmm. and abusive as anybody could possibly be. And I've met some others who were incredibly um, progressive and forward-looking in their leadership and built amazing organizations who were doing phenomenal things and, and adding massive value to their employees, to the community, and, and to and the products and services they're providing for customers. So, so first, I want to acknowledge that there's not a universal there. Second is, I think on the whole, all of us benefit when we have more of both kinds of energies, when we've got that um, linear, directive, forward-pushing kind of, let's call it masculine, male energy, right? We we need that as human beings. And we Mm -hmm. also need the in the moment and the embracing the surrounding. If you want to call it yin-yang or sun and moon or I don't care what you call it, we need all of it and we're healthier and more effective together when we have all of those things. And that's the case when we're talking about a family who's got a a real analytical parent and a real relational parent and a real fun-loving kid and a real studious kid. Like if we can bring all those things together, we're better. And that's true for every team. Did your father work nine to five, 40 hours a week uh, and then come home and then you'd have dinner and so forth? I'm not necessarily saying a, a, um, uh, you know, traditional kind of thing, but I'm just curious, was that your experience and your mom was at home? Uh, No. Uh, So I have a very interesting family background. I talk about it in in Tomorrow Together, kind of to orient the reader. But uh, so my parents split up pretty early. Mm. Um, The memories I do have of their time together, which I'm the oldest, and that took me through about fourth, fifth grade. Uh, Lots of screaming and yelling and and not doing well together. and, and there was a lot of dysfunction, a massive amount of dysfunction, not even time to go into all of that right now. But so they they divorced, split up. Uh, I primarily lived with my father uh, to visit my mom. And so there were six of us. So it kind of was a divide and conquer. My sister, oldest sister and I stayed with my dad, the three youngest with my mom and middle sister. She went back and forth. Um, my dad had a number of different kinds of jobs. He was a milkman. He'd work nights. Uh, he was a, a gas station manager. So a variety of different jobs, uh, social work. It, it, so things that took him to different hours. And I would say that my experience as a child was uh, more of the classic 80s uh, latchkey, when I remembered my key and didn't lose my key, the number of times I broke a window trying to let myself into the house. Uh, and yeah, not so good there. But um, so that was more of my um, situation. I'm wondering, because I've had a, a number of conversations with my father of late, he's 91, still doing well, uh, and uh, my mother, 88, they just celebrated their 65th wedding anniversary last June. Wow. And uh, I just happened to be there. Uh, I was able to fly out to Phoenix from Santa Barbara uh, to attend my late sister's uh, memorial. And um, uh, we uh, we had um, my father, uh, who is is not real. Uh, am, uh, he's not real mobile, so he didn't really want. He was able to watch the memorial 
uh, on on Zoom, which was great. They had it at the church that they, they held it at, and he was able to watch the whole thing, uh, which was great. I'm glad that that, that was available to him. But um, my brother and I and my mother and um, I think one of my sisters, we drove to my other sister's home in the East Valley, and then we went to the memorial, and then we went back to my sister's house, and then uh, my mom wanted to go, and I thought, well, I'll go ahead and go with you. Uh, so my niece drove the three of uh, the two of us back to the house where my dad was, their condo. Uh, to which, as we're coming in, my my father noticed that my brother wasn't there, and jokingly, I said to my father when he asked, "Where's your brother? Where's your brother?" Again, it's sounding concerned, but I, it didn't click in my head. And I said to my dad, and this was just last April, I said to him, well, dad, I, I, I hate to tell you, we had to sell him to put gas in the car. Now, sounds cute and funny, right? Dad did not respond well to that. Look, when I ask a question, I want an answer. I said, I'm sorry. I apologize. I didn't mean to be flippant. He decided to stay behind and he's going to come home with so-and-so. Our, you know, and so he went on his way. So that night I'm there making the making up the couch to go to sleep. My brother got the spare bedroom, uh, <laughs> which was okay hey, with me. You're, you're lucky you didn't get the doghouse. Uh, you're right. Thank God my folks don't have dogs. So that was a fortuitous situation. Um, my father walks into the living room and he walks up to me and he apologizes for going off on me like that. Mm-hmm. So I grabbed him. Well... I put both hands on his shoulders and I said, Dad, I love you and you will always be my father and we are good. And then I watched just recently this movie and this this goes to the, the leadership I think that my father did show because he has shared with uh, with us that he doesn't feel he feels that my mother did more of the raising of us than he did. That he really wasn't around. Well, he wasn't around because he was working nine to five but he was home at night you know he didn't drive either my mother would go pick him up and bring him home and then take him to work in the morning and he he was he was you know this has been his attitude for apparently for a number of years that he doesn't feel that he really had that much of an influence in the raising of us well i happened to watch this movie called um um i can only imagine and it's about this young man that tells his story as a child and growing up with his father, who was rather abusive. Uh, he ends up as, a, a, as an adult writing a song about his father, dedicated to his father, uh, that his father wasn't such a bad guy. You know, I mean, yeah, there were these hard times, but he was still my father. Well, after seeing this movie, I decided to give my father a call. And I said, Dad, you know, you've, you've often said, you know, you've made it clear that you don't feel like you really had much of an influence. I said, I said, Dad, I wouldn't be half the man I am today if it weren't for you. And I'm hoping that that sunk in to that 91-year-old <laughs> brain yeah. of his because... That's, to me, the kind of leadership that allows me to to be that vulnerable with my father who, in rare instances, was that way with us as we were growing up. Yeah. And it's not you know, like he was a tough guy either. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. And when you're, you know, that vulnerability of taking responsibility is so powerful from a leadership perspective. And I, I want to acknowledge something else that you did there, Richard, which uh, in, um, in section two, there's an essay called, can I ask a favor? And it's about a woman, a uh, retired Navy Naval commander names, Mary Kelly, uh, amazing woman. She's, she's a powerhouse. She is one of the reasons that I'm writing today. Um, she encouraged me, took me by the shoulders, gave me the commander Kelly look, I call it and said, you are going to finish that book. And this was one of the very first books I was writing <laughs> and, and walked me through how, and then when she read it, came up and said, David, you're a good writer. And I said, thanks, Mary. I appreciate it. She said, no, 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 you're not listening to me. You're a good writer. Mm. You need to write. Okay. So she did that just like your dad did things for you, right? And we all have people who do things for us and invest in us in different ways. Here's the question. Are we doing what you did? Are we going back and saying thank you? And if you're listening today and you're thinking of someone in your life, I guarantee you there's someone in your life who's invested in you and made a difference for you. And my invitation for you, soon as you finish listening to the show, text them, call them, send them an email and do what Richard just said, said, Hey, listen, it's been a minute, but I want you to know the difference you made in my life. And I want to say, thank you. And if we can do that, Holy cow, what you talk about easy things to do. It's not that hard, but boy, we get busy and every run around and what a difference that can make. It's a principle. And I, every time I see someone doing that, I like to acknowledge it, Richard. I think that's such an important thing. And I also have to say, too, that there are going to be guys in particular that are going to have a hard time with that because they've been raised. <clears throat> I, I, a matter of fact, I just happened to be watching. I haven't finished it yet. I'm still working on finishing it. The, the documentary uh, uh, about Danny Trejo, the rise of Danny Trejo, the actor. He always plays the tough guy. And uh, I had the great pleasure <clears throat> of being part of a... Uh, a panel that was interviewing him via Zoom a few years back. And the man is a funny guy, too, because we're sitting there talking, da-da-da-da-da, and we talked about how, oh, he, oh yeah, there was this one movie you pulled out a machete, you know. The next thing we know, he's sitting on a couch. The next thing we know, he reaches down behind him in the cushions, <laughs> and he pulls out a machete. Of course he does. It's his <laughs> trademark. You've got a hat. He's got a machete. Oh, but... The vulnerability that he, the tough guy, was showing in this documentary. Mm. But also, I got to know him through that interview process that I was part of. I mean, what a great guy. So you, you, you start taking a look at the way that men are raised. And I'm not saying that there's, you know, I'm not talking about toxic masculinity or whatever that means. But in terms of being fully human, because... Yes. We have all of the same emotions that our, fe that our female counterparts have, okay? It's just do we choose to express that? And in a leadership role, that's even harder, isn't it? Because they, the, the traditional thing is, look, you are not friends with these people. You are their boss. That's like the traditional way of looking at it. And I just sit there going... No, I'm a human being and they're a human being. It just so happens we're working together in the same place. Why can't I be a human being with them in this place? 
Are you, you are you, know, you seeing that changing considerably? I mean, because I can't see this going on much longer because it's going to destroy companies as well as individuals. Yeah, you know, there there's a there is definitely an evolving reality, I think, in humanity, um, at least in the Western world, or let's just limit it to the U.S. of what you're talking about. Of, and we've got a long way to go um, when we talk about the dysfunction or unhealthiness and how men have dealt with their emotions, the way that we've been raised, all of that, mm-hmm. uh, and all the dysfunction that it leads to. Uh, and you're absolutely right. And I, it's a, it's something that I think every single one of us has to wrestle with. And as men, it's up to us to figure it out. It's not something that we should be going to women and say, Hey, do you have, like, we gotta, we gotta sort this out for ourselves and, and support one another in that journey. And, I've been tremendously fortunate to have some good male friends that to, to do that work with. And, and we have hard conversations about some of these topics and, and challenge one another in our thinking. And, uh, and to find the people who you can do that with is, is valuable. That doesn't mean any lack of strength. It doesn't mean a lack of showing up and taking responsibility when you need to. And all of those things, it's a, it's a both and here. So we're not sacrificing one to do the other. How about, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I, I was getting to the, the second half of your question, but go ahead. You had an energy. Well, I'm just going to jump in and, 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 and ask you about um, – uh, um, uh, now I've got to try to bring it back because I think I just lost it. Um, the, the, the aspect of, of um, being the fixer. The guys are the fixers. And, and especially in relationships you know, with, with, with your, your spouse, you know, she, sometimes she just wants to share. She's not looking for you to fix anything. She just wants to get to, to vent, so to speak. Yep. But that happens in the workplace too. Do you ever find that Absolutely. that that aspect of it, you know, in this context of what we're talking about, you know, sometimes the employee, if I can use that term, or coworker, just needs to blow off some steam just to let it out. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. upset it's- over a decision. You know, they don't understand why the decision was made. Let's say, or whatever the case may be. And they just need to let it out. And you need to be able to step in and say, I'm listening. I'm listening. I won't try to fix because that's not what you need. Yep. And there are – it's something I've written about extensively from a number of different angles. So let's take the one that you just said. When somebody comes with a complaint or a vent or something, we need to listen and we need to diagnose. It's part of the responsibility as leaders with which we are entrusted just as we are as fathers or husbands or spouses or partners to say – all right, what is actually happening here? And is this person needing support? Are they needing an intervention? Sometimes they are. Sometimes it's helping the person be able to solve their own problem. And other times it's just that listening ear. So what's the most effective role we can play? Well, we have to tune our listening and our radar and our discernment to be able to sort that out. And good leaders and good human beings, in effect, when I say good, I mean effective, mm-hmm. do that, and we do it well. Um, you know, so that's that's one. And then the other, when you're talking about being friends, is there is a healthy and effective way to be friends with our colleagues and teammates. And so the way that I say this, I I'm totally okay with being friends at work, but I have some criteria. I will be friends with someone if I believe that. They understand that I also sometimes am going to have to make decisions that put the needs of the team above the needs of our friendship. 
because that's the responsibility I've accepted as the leader of this team is I'm responsible for supporting the entire team, not just the people I'm, I'm friends with. Mm. If they're okay with that, that's good. Also, if I needed to fire them for poor performance or for, you know, they did something wrong or became a bully or, you know, I don't know any of that. And like we coached and worked our way through it and I had to let them go. Could we still be friends? If I think that's the case, then I'll, I will open myself to friendship with that person. And when I say friendship, my personality is such that I can count my close friends on one or two hands. And then they, there's concentric circles. Or there's close friends. Then there's this next level friends. Then there's friendly acquaintances. And then there's, you know, oh, people I'm friendly with, but we're not like friends. You know, like I have yeah. these definitions and ranges. But if you're going to get into that closer circle, and by the way, I have had some of those friendships. And we're friends to this day many, many years after but that's the level of understanding that I think it takes. And then the second thing is as a, a leader, uh, when you're having these conversations, particularly if you get put in a position of management or leadership with someone with whom you have been friends, one of the most important things you can do is have a discussion right up front. Listen, I value our friendship and my roles and responsibilities have changed here. And I want to have a conversation about that because this means I'm going to need to sometimes do this on behalf of the team, or I'm going to be asked to, you know, implement a policy that I may or may not have agreed with. And you may or may not have agreed with, but we're still going to need to do it. Yeah. And as friends, we can commiserate and go, yeah, I don't get it. That doesn't make sense to me. And I'm going to try to get the answer. I'm going to try to do all that as a leader. Great. But sometimes those things are going to happen. Are we cool with that? And so let's just get that on the table. Let's have the conversation up front and acknowledge that I'm going to be switching hats. Yeah. And then as a, as a leader who is also a friend, can I switch? I like to visibly switch hats. As your leader, as your manager, as a team support here, I got to say this. Let me take that hat off. As your friend, here's the deal. And just be clear which voice I'm speaking with. And if we do that, those are things, those are practices I recommend that, that uh, leaders, team leaders uh, engage in to have effective and healthy, meaningful friendships at work that avoid a lot of the pitfalls and dilemmas that have caused people to say, oh, the heck with it. You can't be friends at work. Yeah. David Dye is my guest. The book that uh, we are sort of uh, featuring here on the program, Tomorrow Together, Essays of Hope, Healing, and Humanity, as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, we encourage you to go to David Dye's website, which is letsgrowleaders.com. Uh, it's it's a statement, but it's also a website. Tomorrow Together is the uh, book, Essays of Hope, Healing, and Humanity. Is there a particular essay throughout this book that epitomizes, if you will, David and his leadership qualities or styles uh, where people can read that essay and go, oh, that's who David is. Oh, interesting, Richard. You know, I have never been asked that question before. If I had to choose one, wow. And you notice I didn't say what was your favorite. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that no, kind of said, stuff, because well, that's, that's a question that I was like, no, 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 no. So, yeah, I, I'd be very interested if you, if you uh, were to share that with us. I am. Let me think about that for a moment here. You've got me thinking. That is... That is a good one. I'll tell you what. While you're thinking, I'm going to let you know that this is Tell Me Your Story. We're here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. with our special edition of Tell Me Your Story. 
And then uh, we are streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. Podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, many other locations. We're on YouTube where you can watch these interviews and we'll also be linked to David's website. David Dye is my guest. And the website is letsgrowleaders.com. David, have you had a chance to uh, come up with something yet? I have, and I'm going to to pick. There are so many to choose from, but I got to choose one. I'm going to go with. It's called People and Trees, and, and so I I start by I quote this article uh, that was in a, a New York newspaper back during the Civil War, U.S. Civil War, where Abraham Lincoln was asked uh, about General Grant, and and people were complaining about General Grant and saying he was a drunkard and you got to get him out of there. And Lincoln says, "Well, gentlemen, you surprised me." can you tell me where he gets his whiskey? And they said, well, no, we can't. Why do you want to know? And President Lincoln is supposed to have said, well, if you can find out, I want to give all my generals whatever whiskey he's drinking because everybody needs that. Uh, I need that level of performance from all my generals. And here's what he was getting at. And and there are other uh, other leaders who have said similar things like uh, – King George, I think uh, the second it was, who, who Lincoln probably would have read. Uh, somebody said, uh, came to him and told him one of his generals or someone was was mad. And he said, huh, well, I wish he'd bite my other generals and infect them with the same crazy because he gets it done. <laughs> and so, you know, what I see there reminded me, I went to the the National Bonsai Museum in Washington, D.C., which is an amazing place to visit. If, you, if you've never been there, listener, I definitely recommend it. These trees are ridiculous. They're amazing. And there's this one there that's 400 years old. It survived the atomic bombing at Hiroshima. And it was gifted to the U.S. uh, in 76 for our bicentennial 1976 uh, celebration. So it's this art and sculpture and peace between nations. And it takes, you know, daily care for 400 years. This tree has survived. And I asked the gardener. I was just blown away. I'm like, I'm nearly in tears, Richard. We're talking about emotions. I was moved by the story of this tree and what all it represents and the beauty of everything. And I asked this, one of the caretakers there, I said, man, how do you make these trees so beautiful? And he looked at me, he was an older guy. He looked at me, he said, son, you don't make a tree do anything. Our job is to make them beautiful. Our job is to take care of them, to cultivate them, to to find that beauty. And yeah, we trim and we, we fertilize and we, and we uh, prune and we protect from bugs and disease and, and all that, but it's to reveal that beauty and every tree's got its own shape and distinctive features. And we want to help express those. And I was flying home from that visit and it got me thinking about what he was saying and how true that is. Yeah. Of trees, but it's also true of people. There's so much, you can't make a tree do something, yet the same holds true for people. And there's so much peace and joy in appreciating people for who they are, to see their beauty and strength and enjoy and celebrate their unique energy and talents, their personality, their skills, their interests, their abilities, and all that they can add to the world, to your team, to your life. And unless it's really, truly toxic or harmful, to just let the rest go. It's about what they're bringing. And if we can approach one another that way, whether from a leadership perspective, from a life perspective, how much more can we do together to create a better tomorrow? And I think ultimately you're asking me something that's going to distill that essence of what I'm about, what the book's about. That's tomorrow together in a nutshell. Can we see each other, look for that in one another 
and join hands to move forward and build a better tomorrow. Yeah. It's uh, really, uh, really something to, to be able to um, learn how to be the kind of leader that people need. And that's, that's another aspect of it, too, is being the, I don't know, maybe the right term is sort of be the chameleon so that you are the kind of leader that each, each coworker needs uh, as well as the team. I mean, they're knowing your people. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't there isn't there a a certain aspect of that in in leadership where uh, just like in education, no two children learn the same. Uh, And yet we try to cookie cut um, the educational system so that everybody gets exactly the same thing and nobody's left behind. And the fact is, when you do that, kids get left behind because that's not the way they learn. Curiosity. If we can show up with curiosity for one another, we're going to be ahead of the game. Yeah. Very, very interesting stuff. Well, we're talking with uh, David Dye. He is the author of Tomorrow Together. We hope you'll get a copy. Go to his website, letsgrowleaders.com. We will be linked to that website as well as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and this program, as I mentioned earlier, uh, is broadcast. We have podcasts as well on SoundCloud and iTunes, and we're on YouTube and, and all those other good things. But there's one area, David, that I want to ask you about in reference to what we've been promoting for the last couple, three years. started in September of 2019, and it started out as uh, the Year of Perfect Vision 2020. And when 2020 was over, we went to the decade of perfect vision. What it is, is encouraging people to go within, to listen to that still, small voice. How important is intuition in a leadership role? Vital. I call it follow the music. And when the data is not aligning with our gut, we've got work to do. And so listening to that and figuring it out. Now, our intuition, our gut isn't always right. Sometimes it's based on um, bad experiences or stories we're telling ourselves or things like that that aren't accurate. But when it's not aligned, we need to listen. We've got some work to do. The more I uh, listen to that still small voice, the more I follow the promptings, uh, the easier it gets over time. So it almost becomes second nature. And... I have to wonder if you personally, if not in terms of your dealings with other leaders in various positions across the board, uh, you found that they do that, that they actually spend that time. I'm not saying they've got to spend the time meditating. I know that's kind of a, a weird thing to do while at work, but, you know, and that they trust the guidance that they are getting. Even if it's contrary to the uh, leadership handbook that they might be following at any given time. Yeah. Hey, listen, I I have walked out of roles that people said, you are nuts to walk out of this because that voice you're talking about was very clear that this is the right thing for you to do. This is the healthy, the effective, the aligned choice with your values, with your situation, whatever it is that you're looking at. It doesn't have to make sense to other people. But if we're not true to ourselves, even if, and then also stay curious and leave room for learning 10 years in the future, I might not make the same choice, but that's the choice I needed to make at that moment. 
And that's part of developing that confidence and humility that are a core part of our effectiveness. Absolutely. Mm. This has been an interesting conversation. I've really enjoyed this, and it's uh, been very enlightening as well. Um, one other area I want to talk about before we wrap things up is uh, the the aspect of the appropriate amount of appreciation. Uh, I had an experience. It was on a Veterans Day in 1999. And uh, prior to the morning show broadcast of that day, the, the PD brought us in uh, with the exception of the host of the show for three hours or four. Uh, no, it was four hours. This guy was on for four hours. I was his producer. I'm running the board and making sure everything gets played and the commercials over. And the PD says, look, our host, Austin Hill, really intelligent. This guy is smarter than you can shake a stick at. But what we want to bring out of him is his emotion. We want to, we want to get him to be more warm and fuzzy, so to speak. All right. So we get to the show. We go through the four hours. We're wrapping up. 9.58.59, and he is saying his goodbyes, and all of a sudden, he, Austin, starts to break down. And the first thought that my, went through my mind was, oh, wait a minute. I mean, we wanted to bring out the emotions. We didn't want to make him cry. <laughs> anyway, the show went flawlessly. We're off the air. We're into the news. I knew the show was perfect. It went fabulous, and I was so excited because it was like, oh, yeah, that was great. The PD walks into the control room, stands in front of me. I can't see Austin through the glass now. He puts his hand out, and he says, all he said was, four stars. And I shook his hand, and I'm going, wow. Now, I didn't think that I was the greatest producer in the world, I took it for what it was worth that that four hours was really appreciated. It went so well. It went flawlessly, and we got the host to cry. We got him to emote. Do you find that leaders sometimes will go overboard? And, and also sometimes they'll undercut. They won't really yes. show the employee, the coworker, the appreciation that they really do deserve for the hard work that they've put in. Yeah. Uh, and Richard, I, I want to acknowledge, I have to be a little brief on this answer because I've got another call coming in right as we're talking here. Okay. But if, if I were to um, frame that, I would say that more often than not, leaders are not giving enough encouragement, um, expressing gratitude frequently enough um, or often enough. If you're going overboard with it, people will let you know. Mm. But if I had to say that the default is nowhere near enough. Yeah. And and we can all use a little more of that in our yeah. life. Um I, I and and I hate to to have to 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 end it here. I do have three questions. They're very brief. The first one is who is David Dye? David Dye is a leader, a writer, an author, a husband, a father, now a grandfather, uh, but someone who deeply believes there is hope for us in the future if we will extend our hands to one another, be curious about one another, and make the choice 
of curiosity and empathy. And what is your life's purpose? Leave it better than I found it. I'm an old Boy Scout, so camping <laughs> motto, every campground, we wanted to leave it better than we found it, and that's my goal with life. And the last one is, what was your best day? Ooh, best day. So many to choose from. Uh, both, best, best day recently, I just did my first ultra marathon. I ran just under 33 miles uh, oh. over some trails. That was an amazing transformative experience that weeks later I am still processing. Well, congratulations on that and on being a grandfather. And I thank you again for joining us here on the program. I thank you for listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to lol. And Jeanette, I am listening. <laughs>